Welcome to Capital Musings, the official podcast of the United Nations Capital Development Fund. I am your host, David McHale. If this is the first time you are listening, welcome. If you are a repeat listener, thanks for coming back. Today, we have one of what will be a series of podcasts that we're going to be doing on the great untold story of UNCDF, and that is specifically our policy work within the digital space. The work that we do from a policy standpoint to ensure that LDC economies, least developed countries, actually have the right and appropriate ecosystems to ensure that their digital economies are in fact inclusive. We're about to invite a guest who often remarks that we're soon going to reach a point where the term digital economy is a redundancy because the economy is in and of itself digital. So how can we ensure that digital economies are also inclusive when in fact what we know about digital is that you need to have intentionality in order to ensure that inclusiveness. We're going to answer that question through a series of podcasts. This is the first one that we are recording and sharing. And I can't think of a better way to start than to have a roundtable discussion with my guest. We have Ahmed Dermish. He is Lead Specialist for Policy and Government Advocacy with UNCDF. We have Amani Itatiro, who is Technical Specialist based out of East Africa, and he is actually working out of our office in Kampala, Uganda, which represents UNCDF's largest field presence. And we have Olivia Longcue, who's Policy Analyst for Digital Finance operating out of Dakar, Senegal, and part of our West Africa team. So I couldn't be more pleased to have this group with us today, again, to talk about the work that we do to ensure that the right policy ecosystems are in place so that digital economies are inclusive. And for that matter, this is a challenge that is not singular to least developed countries or developing countries. Markets all over the world, as they become digitized or as they engage in digitalization, all wrestle with this challenge of how to ensure that their economies are inclusive. There are distinct challenges that the markets that we work in face, and this is why we have particular thought leaders who are driving this particular work. And I think it's a great way to start with you, Ahmed. So, and just as a, by way of background, the UNCDF is broken into three pillars. One of the pillar of note for our conversation is our financial inclusion practice area, which works to support, build, and advance inclusive digital economies, specifically within the least developed countries, within the poorest and most challenging markets in the world. So, Ahmed, I'd like to start with you as lead specialist of policy and government advocacy, just to provide an overview of our practice and really of the specific policy work that UNCDF engages in. Thanks, David. Really appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast and to talk to you again. We've had a lot of conversations, so it's nice to organize them. And I'm excited to also have the team contribute. So just to get it started and answer your question. So our financial inclusion practice is increasingly focusing on digital economies. And yes, despite that, I do believe in the future, we will just be calling it the economy and that'll probably happen sooner than we think. We do need to be deliberate and intentional now about making sure that perhaps inevitable digital future is inclusive. So what is inevitable is that it'll be digital. What is not inevitable is that it will be inclusive. So I think that's really where our, our inclusion practice area sits. I feel like 
you've had several people on your podcast that describe our leaving no one behind strategy. None that did a fantastic one on women's economic empowerment. So rather than going through perhaps the overall strategy and, and how those different pieces, I'll focus on like the four core pillars of how we see it come together. And those are empowering customers. So making sure that the focus we apply to the economy is on the needs of people. And I think an organizing framework for what customer needs are is really in line with the SDGs, right? So people need better education, they need better health, they need better productivity, access to fishing, land rights. There, there's a plethora of issues. Nobody wakes up in the morning necessarily wanting a bank account per se or a digital wallet. So the first pillar of our practice area now is really around empowering customers. And then really in the spirit of the digital context, we look at innovation and inclusive innovation to ask this question around, to what degree are these new technologies, these new models that are emerging, really serving the needs of everyone, not just middle-income folks in urban areas that have data plans on a smartphone, right? That's already a very, very small subset of the global population, despite its exponential growth year on year. So how are innovators thinking through solutions that serve women that serve youth, that serve farmers, that serve rural people, that serve entrepreneurs in a rural context versus farmers, et cetera. And so those empowering customers in, in innovation, inclusive innovation formulate like those two pillars. Then the rails, as many in the industry call them, are the multi-two pillars. And those are inclusive infrastructure. Foremost in that inclusive infrastructure is payments. And not just payment infrastructure, as in sort of your payment switch and your RTGS systems, et cetera, but also your payment products. Like how are payment solutions designed to make it easier for people to pay? And the discussion you had with Ruth Goodwin-Grun from the Better Than Cash Alliance, I think goes into a lot of why digital payments are better. So I won't have to recap that here, but we do feel that the right infrastructure can make digital payments be as good as cash. The other element of that infrastructure pillar is on the ID infrastructure, right? Like without the right identification, it is difficult to open an account to protect your own data. There are a lot of fundamentals that come with just being able to identify yourself. And in a digital context, that manifests itself in verification and authorization. Does the business know it's me? And can I authorize this transaction to happen on my behalf? And identity and digital identity really allows that to happen. And then the final one where we sit is the policy and regulatory side. And in that enabling policy and regulatory work stream, but we really think about one, how does it intersect with the three other pillars? Obviously, there's overlaps amongst all of them. They're not just bilateral relationships. They're also intermingled. But to what degree is policy designed with the user in mind? To what degree is regulation put in place to reduce obstacles for innovation and to ensure that innovation is inclusive? And to what degree do governments and policymakers in particular prioritize critical infrastructure investment that allows identity and payments to scale in a way that serves the inclusive opportunity, innovation opportunities and the needs of customers. So there's a lot baked into the policy and regulatory bit. And then the final thing to add to those four pillars, so just as a recap, empowering customers, inclusive innovation, inclusive infrastructure and enabling policy and regulation is just that we try and focus on the objectives of a local government or a local context. 
right? So not all of those pillars will apply equally in all countries. Each market will have its own shape, form, needs, and demands. There's best practice. There's emerging trends. Yes, there are things that are comparable amongst peers, but ultimately how those four pillars operate will differ on a country by country basis. So those are those four things really formulate the basis of our practice area, our current strategy, leaving no one behind in the digital era. First off, thank you so much for that overview. I think it's critical and I feel like the distinguishing factor of UNCDF's digital strategy has always been that it's been holistic, that it's always looked at stakeholders, it's always looked at digital infrastructure, it's always looked at private sector, and it's always looked at consumers and as well as regulators, which we will discuss in particular today. So I want to just cue in a little bit before we turn it over to Amani and Olivia. So the specific policy outlet within the practice is the UNCDF Policy Accelerator. And as the Luddite of this today, I, I want to ask a, a fairly remedial question, and that's behind the use of the term accelerator. And I think maybe more to the point, I know that there's an intentionality behind the use of that term, and I know that acceleration is at the heart of this policy approach from the standpoint of digital. So if you could unpack that a little bit, why acceleration? What is the necessity of acceleration towards your work in the context of policy to ensure inclusive digital economies? Thanks for the the point about it being intentional use of the term. Because I'll be honest, when we were in sort of the design phase a couple of years ago, acceleration, accelerator became just a descriptor of what we wanted to achieve. So a couple of things here. First of all, there's a huge difference between where we are today and where we were, say, five years ago or even 10 years ago. And that's the case, the advocacy case for financial inclusion in particular and the role of technology doesn't have to be made anymore. Governments, private sector, individuals, non-government agencies, we all understand that the future is, is going to be technology driven in some form and that there are ways that we it can be inclusive. So the why and the what are much more clear now than they were five to 10 years ago. That allows us to focus on acceleration, right? Because the there's a gap between the knowledge and implementation. And the way we've framed that is that there's a solutions gap, right? Where you have global practice, you've got a lot of great examples. You've got what we call the stack in India, where you have a G2P program and an identity infrastructure and a payment infrastructure, really demonstrating how those three things collectively can scale inclusive financial services. You've got these really fantastic innovation environments in, say, Kenya, Indonesia, Malaysia, really demonstrating what that looks like holistically. Singapore, with financial health, mandating responsible credits, insurance, pensions at all levels of society. So we have a sense of what it could look like, what the solutions look like in practice. But the, the hard part is translating that in a way that's meaningful in Malawi, in Myanmar, right, in Burkina Faso. And where we come in with the acceleration is to harness the will of governments to promote that future, that inclusive digital future, and then accelerate the process of applying solutions that are appropriate to them. And everybody wants it to happen. And we have yet to meet a regulator who tells us that they didn't want it yesterday. So what can we do 
to help deliver on that demand from our counterpart in government who says, this is important for us, for our economic needs, for our individual development needs, for our regional needs. We feel like we're behind the ball in some form, or we feel that we could take leadership in this regard. Like those two attributes are often the most common sort of character that we get from our government counterpart. We want to be the first to do this, or there's an opportunity for us to catch up. And so that spirit of can what can UNCDF do to help is really then characterized by, well, let's do it faster. What do you need to learn about this? Okay, great. Let's get you into some processes that you can learn more about what you need to do. What are the options available to you? Okay, great. Let's undertake uh, an assessment process where you're participating, where we can very quickly put the viable options in front of you so you can decide now. What does your consultation process look like with industry? How can we help? Can we bring them to the table rather than you having to reach out? There are multiple elements of our methodology that collectively contribute to acceleration. Acceleration is not just giving advice faster, right? Acceleration means looking at the entire process of policy design and regulatory implementation I'm thinking from A to B, soup to nuts, how do we get through this entire process faster? And in conclusion, I just want to highlight that quality matters, right? So we don't just want to push the relation through. We want to make it consultative. And that means taking the time to talk to the industry, to talk to consumer groups about what are their reactions to this policy? What is the likely impact ex ante of this regulation or this policy on your business model or on your life as an individual. There's a saying in sports and the military and in many contexts that slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And the way we approach our acceleration model in many ways is starting slow by trying to identify the different pieces that need to come together, matching them to goals, and then being really consistent. That's the smooth part, applying them in sequence. And surprisingly, by starting carefully, you end up in an endpoint that's much higher quality and much faster than we would have if we just let it evolve on its own. So, and so thank you for all of that. I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that regulators needing to catch up with digital innovations and disruptions is, is hardly relegated. Of course, I don't need to tell you this is hardly relegated to LTC markets, but it's critical to provide those services precisely in the markets that we're providing them. Before I go to Amani, I just want to flag that the accelerated work is also being done in partnership with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And if you wouldn't mind discussing that a little more, is that work specifically within the space of women's digital financial inclusion? So we're really lucky to have partners like the Gates Foundation and more recently the French Ministry of Finance who share the same ethos. And with a couple of years back, we built this, the initial form of the accelerator based on this awareness that there are many African markets that have the advocacy program has worked, but they needed support and were requesting support through great organizations like AFI, et cetera, the Alliance for Financial Inclusion, for technical assistance to provide those solutions, particularly in Francophone, West and Central Africa. So we were able with the foundation to scale services that are available to many of those markets. And the fundamental element of that initial form of the accelerator was that the solutions are out there. CGAP has done some really fantastic work at the World Bank on the basic enablers to regulating digital financial services. And that research is based on 10, 10 years of evidence 
that's the basis upon which we can then take those solutions and apply them locally. And, and that's really what the Gates Foundation relationship has allowed us to do is take a really solid set of evidence and then go in country and apply it in reality. And then the relationship with the French Ministry of Finance through their presidency of the G7 in 2019 has created this partnership with the World Bank's ID4D program, JPAL at MIT in, in Massachusetts, Oxford's Pathways for Prosperity program, as well as the African Development Bank on various pillars of the market, very similar to our inclusion practice pillars. So I won't recap those. The focus being solely on women's economic empowerment. And then UNCDF is taking leadership of the policy and regulatory lead elements. So the questions we're asking there is of those fundamental enablers that will drive financial inclusion, which ones will have an outsized impact on women? And through that G7 partnership, we're able to, in a sense, double our efforts in particular around consumer protection, building trust, more transparency into the system, but also on access to accounts. And so between the two, the Gates and the French funding, we're able to really take longer term, three to four year view, which in policy terms is actually like medium term, right? It's not that long relative to how long many policy reforms take in, in reality to have impact. But we're able to take a three to four year view on, on really looking at systemic change across Africa and a much more continental, much more regional view than we would have otherwise. Thank you for that. I think that's a perfect segue to both Amani and Olivia in terms of particularly taking a local but also a regional approach. So Amani, as we said at the top, technical specialist working out of Uganda, I think a great place for us to start is if you could provide an overview of the work that is currently taking place within your portfolio and specifically in, in your part of the continent. Thanks, David. And thanks, Hamid, for highlighting greatly on what we normally do here. So, David, currently we are engaging heavily with our work in Uganda, but we also have countries like Rwanda, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Egypt, we are always supporting. And then basically our methodology, like Hamid has highlighted before, we normally do our own country, I mean, there's the research, which we call the diagnostic, and then identifying gaps. And at the same time, we may go far and then meet the, both the, and the private sector and the stakeholders to get an insight and further understanding how the country landscape is with regard to digital economies. So if I can give an example, the work that we recently did with Ethiopia, we were lucky that we are in the process of developing the new directives, which will allow non-banks to now operate in the digital financial services realm. So this is one of the examples whereby a country will be influenced by the business model. And for the case of if it was a bank-led model. And then so we brought in an insight by doing benchmarking of what other countries do in terms of applying different types of different types of regulatory and legal environments in regulating the new payments players, which supports financial inclusion at the same time. So the key issue here was like making sure that whatever new regulatory framework that is coming up is enabling enough to enable a new entrants to operate as well, as well as to survive sustainably. So I like you to provide our technical expertise in a reviewing and, and doing the benchmarking with other countries. And then given the fact that I'm coming with the background of a regulator, I could also share our experience and having been through the similar process before with a regulator in Tanzania. So from that point of view, 
our unit brings together the gaps. We try to fill the gaps. You may see sometimes the regulator may not be in touch with what the private sector needs, right? So we, we try to fill that gap. And then as usual, bureaucracy on the regulator side, if I may call it that way, because of their macro view that normally a regulator would have. So us being able to bring different tools, which can analyze areas where some of the time which may be missed and bringing together the view of the private sector, we are able to just fill in and improve the policymaking process. And in that way, it's, we call it acceleration. Thank you. That's a great point. I want to actually focus on one point that you made regarding filling the gap between the regulators and the private sector. And the reason I want to focus on that, Amani, is because you have a very specific professional profile that you bring to UNCDF. You worked, if I'm not mistaken, at the Bank of Tanzania. So you've seen firsthand this, this interaction between regulators and the private sector. So if you wouldn't mind discussing a little bit more about filling the gap, just what does that mean? I would say just as much at a practical level as at a regulatory and technical level. So what I mean here is sometimes based on the capacity on the regulator side, right? In terms of time or financial, because some of these processes require both financial and other non-financial resources like time. So if you have someone who can bring together and fill all those gaps, for our part, it's bringing this technical expertise of engaging the private sector on behalf of the regulator. And at the same time, bringing them to the table together and say like, these are the findings that we have found based on our analysis and this is our methodology that we used. And we let them share with us what their perspective is and bringing the other side as well, which normally in some cases would not happen. So this is what I think that we are, that's where we, we come in and fill in the gap. And also having ready-made tools that they can utilize to gather information from where before they could not do so without it. So the process would take much longer if we did not offer those tools that we, we offer to do the process. And thank you for that. I mean, really even more emphasizing the point about acceleration. I want to ask you one more question before we get to Olivia. And again, forgive as the Luddite, as the least technical person among all of us here today, I think the term that we constantly hear in this space is regional or at least regulatory harmonization and even more broadly, regional regulatory harmonization. Can you just unpack what exactly that is and, the import- and why is it so critical to ensuring that digital economies are inclusive? So when we talk about regional harmonization at large, our unit's objective is to support or facilitate and complement existing efforts which are already there by governments, regional bodies, and uh, multilateral bodies. So in Africa, we have SADC, EAC, and CEMAC, for example, and even working with the African Development Bank to achieve greater regulatory harmonization across Africa. So the importance here, we are looking at creating an enabling environment for the vulnerable population to boost financial inclusion at the end, right? So normally we see challenges in these regions across Africa, whereby we would have a fragmented custom regimes with low level of automated systems. And then you would also have like a fragmented financial system with high reliance on banking systems. So that way, these are systems that are reliant on the legacy environments. So by bringing in together solutions 
for which we would focus on an enabling environment provided by the legal and regulatory framework, which would enhance issues like consumer protection, right? Interoperability of systems to facilitate faster movement of payments within the, the regions. So that's where we come in and offer support. And that, we believe that if we have digital financial services that have already proven to improve financial inclusion at the domestic level, and if that can be amplified at the regional level by providing this technical assistance and tools that we can provide, you can see a greater growth in terms of financial inclusion at this regional level. Thank you for that. I'd love to shift now to West and, and Central Africa, that part of our portfolio. Olivia, as we introduced at the top policy analyst for digital finance, just talk with us about or just provide an overview of the work that we've been doing in this space so far, specifically where you're operating. Thank you, David, for having me and thank you for asking this question. So as initially mentioned by my co-workers, as part of the Africa Policy Accelerator, we cover two markets in Western Africa, namely Mauritania and Niger, and also the six countries of the SEMEC area, the economic and monetary community of Central Africa. In Mauritania specifically, we've been conducting a similar process as the one that has just been described by Amani. In the context of Mauritania, we were supporting the central bank there in drafting their new e-money regulatory framework to enable non-bank e-money issuers. And we've also been helping them on their consumer protection regulation. And we are in the process of organizing a public-private dialogue with the stakeholders from the digital ecosystem to enable them to have more visibility on the upcoming modification of the regulatory framework and to also enable them to be involved in the elaboration of this new regulatory framework. In Central Africa, we are currently leading an online diagnostic mission to get a better grasp of the financial inclusion situation in the six countries of the CEMEC area. The six countries there are Cameroon, the Central African Republic, Chad, the Republic of Congo, Gabon, and Equatorial Guinea. So in each of these countries, we are currently leading interviews with the stakeholders from the digital ecosystem to try to understand what are the regulatory impediments and some possible policy options for the expansion of digital financial services, and in particular, mobile money in the CEMEC area. So the, the stakeholders that we have been interviewing there are public and private stakeholders, namely regulators, policymakers, telecom operators, banks, microfinance institutions, the civil society organization, and also some development partners. Ultimately, what we are really trying to achieve in the CEMAC region is also to understand what are the factors which explain the discrepancy between the different CEMAC countries, because we've seen with the the index that there were 6% of adults in the Republic of Congo, for instance, who had access to a mobile money account in 2016, and the rate was at 44% for, for Gabon, for instance. So we are really trying to understand what are the factors that can explain the differences there, whether these factors are linked to the regulatory framework. And we're also trying to see what are the factors who could be linked to some social and and cultural factors which might be affecting the use of mobile money in these countries. So we are hoping to finalize the stakeholder consultation in October and to then get back to the regional regulator there to discuss about our findings and to work on the regulatory framework with them. So thank you for that. I think we've been talking a lot about filling the gap between 
regulators and the private sector. We've been focusing a lot really on the impacts that this would have on the consumer side. Olivia, I'd love to hear from you about what that means from the regulator side in terms of equipping them with what they need. It would seem that a lot of our work involves really, when we talk about regulation, we're also talking about really the transformation of the banking industry. And so basically, what are the needs that regulators have that need to be filled to support this transformation? And how is UNCDF doing that specifically? Thank you for asking this question. Actually, the issue of of consumer protection regulation is one that we came across in all the markets that we've been working in so far in Western and Central Africa. Most specifically, I think from a regulatory perspective, I think what we are trying to help the regulators with or to assist them with designing this regulatory framework, which will be conducive to consumer protection. So helping them to understand what are the the disposition of the regulation that should be including there, all the regulations that is related to also data protection and also ensure that the governance surrounding consumer protection could be harmonized at the regional level. That is something that we are specifically working in the CEMAC region because there is a regional regulator there. Some elements related to consumer protection also have a national regulator, and that's why we are trying to ensure that there could be a lot of coordination there and that the regulation can be harmonized at the regional level. On the shifts to the digital era and and the needs that regulators might have in this regard, and especially when it comes to consumer protection, we are also trying to ensure that regulators can have access to trainings to ensure that they can have the skills and the knowledge that will enable them to design these new regulatory frameworks on on consumer protection. So we have been developing partnerships with some training institutes, which focuses on digital financial services and, and regulation in digital financial services. And we are enabling regulators in Western and in Central Africa to have access to these trainings and to also have some certification which could provide them with the required skills that they would need to design these policies and regulations lead to financial inclusion and, and digital financial services. So again, thank you so much for that. I want to ask you one more question before I ask a final question to Ahmed. And again, so much, not just of UNCDF's work in the context of digital, but frankly, throughout the organization touches on women's economic empowerment. In fact, women's economic empowerment is the only thematic that cuts across the entirety of UNCDF's work stream. So as far as we are concerned, we integrate women's economic empowerment into all of UNCDF's work. And and just as a side note, as Ahmed mentioned at the top, we recorded a great podcast several months ago with Nandini Hari Harishora, specifically on the work of digital financial inclusion in women. But Olivia, I... I'd love to just ask you just to provide a few quick thoughts specifically on the gender lens in the context of regulation. What are maybe one or two regulatory barriers that impact women in particular and 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 how do we work to resolve or address those barriers? Thank you, David, for asking this question. Maybe related to the regulatory barriers, there's one which is more linked to the policy barriers, and and it's the issue of data collection and the access to data that are sex-disaggregated data, to have an understanding of the way women have 
use and have access to financial services. Something that we have realized when we were carrying out the interviews in Central Africa, but also in Western Africa, was that from a private sector perspective, the stakeholders there did not see the collection of disaggregated data as a priority. And sometimes they really didn't understand the value in understanding the different needs of women in the markets that they were covering. And we also see that there is not enough incentives from the regulators and the policymakers to ensure that the private sector will provide them with the data, which will be required to be able to design policies and regulation, which will take into account the specific needs of women when it comes to access and use of digital financial services. So that's one of the issues that we have identified so far and that we are trying to work with the regulators to provide them with the, the trainings and the skills to be able to draft this type of policies and to involve the private sector in this regard. And the other element that I've already mentioned is related to consumer protection. And also we see that when it comes to consumer protection or access to means of recourse to be able to voice the concerns when women have some concerns regarding to the way they use financial services. Sometimes they do not have access to information on the type of support that they can have from either financial service providers or, or also from the regulators. And also the issue of financial education that is lacking in some of the markets that we cover. And we do not see enough trainings or enough projects which aim to provide financial education to, to women in the markets that we work on. Thank you so much for that, Olivia. Definitely an important aspect of the work. Ahmed, so I want to finish with you and just the final question relating again to the policy accelerator and really just what can we expect from the UNCDF policy accelerator between now and the end of the year? So let me just preface that real quick to highlight a couple things, just reflecting a little bit on what um, Amani and, and Olivia shared, if, if I can, David, real quick. I think we have a tendency, particularly as policy wonks, to dive into the details and embrace some of the complexity when we're talking about multiple layers of consultation, private sector, human-centered design, po policy rules and, and regulations and laws and how they interact and all these things. It's a total conversation for another podcast, perhaps, but I think the real barriers are very uh, straightforward in many ways. And Olivia, I think, alluded to many of them. It's capacity issues where there's only two people, or in the case of some large markets we work with, four people in the payments department. So you could have the best regulations in the world, but they're fundamentally unsupervisable, right? And if you can't oversee the market, then you can't hold providers accountable. And so just as simple as getting, do you have enough people in your department to execute on this policy objective is a massive issue. No, a lot of regulators are willing to consult with the industry, but they don't have the administrative processes to facilitate the process, to hold a meeting, to book a hotel conference room, to have regular meetings, to have a secretariat, to take notes and share afterwards. These are sound very simple, but I think a lot of our acceleration model comes from diving deep into the big complex issues on a technical basis and then identifying these small, very operational barriers and then unsticking them. And I think where we look for in terms of solutions on the regional harmonization side is equally very real stories. So it's less about broad-based political alignment to achieve a single market status for West and Central Africa like the EU, 
but like can a truck from Cameroon drive into Nigeria and back? Can a truck from Senegal make its way to Cote d'Ivoire and trade equally? And can we find the digital equivalent of that? So if I receive my goods off my truck, it came on time, can I pay the vendor the same day I received it? And can he get that money in his account? Because if we can build that transactional trust, then that truck is going to come back again, right? And we'll see more trade. If you look at the borders of almost any African region, you'll find the economic activity is in two places, in the middle of the city and on the borders near major roads, right? And those two hubs need to be digitized. And, and harmonization is about making that flow easier. It's very practical in that way. So I just wanted to maybe anchor a little bit of what we've been talking about in these real terms so it's not too conceptual. So what to expect from the accelerator going forward? A big thing is we're going to be more transparent about our tools and processes. Core element of our acceleration model is not the methodology per se. Again, it's nothing fancy. It's just being systematic about it. The only way Olivia can work in Niger, Mauritania, and six MAC countries is if she has a process that can work well in all of them. The discussions might be different, but the process is the same. So we'll be publishing a set of policy tools that regulators will be able to use. They're not reliant on us per se, or it makes it easier for us to work with them. And by easier, it's simply more transparent. And those policy tools hopefully will go live around December. Uh, between now and then, we'll be really focusing more, as Olivia alluded to, on our consumer protection work, particularly around women's economic empowerment, really thinking intentionally about what elements of consumer protection regulations in a digital context will improve the likelihood of women using those products. It's a simple question with a lot of variables that we'll be digging into. I know you've got uh, some plug for your future podcast, Naomi and Karim teed up for another podcast on consumer protection and the work we're doing in Sierra Leone is a fantastic example of stuff we're excited to share about that. Other things upcoming are financial health. There's a big gap right now and think in terms of the global dialogue around why bother with financial inclusion, digital economy for whom and, and to what end, where does resilience come in here? And I think the monetary authority of, of Singapore, MAS, and the financial health network in the US are really championing you know, this idea of financial health. And we're hoping in the policy side, the idea of promoting financial health is actually a more clear outcome to guide policy rules. Inclusion in the context of health, I think, is an important thing. We'll be saying a little bit more about that coming up. So those are the big things. Consumer protection, more to say about women's economic empowerment, financial health, and most importantly, our policy tools. And you can find all of these things and more about them on our uh, web space, uh, policyaccelerator.uncdf.org. Which we will promote alongside with this podcast. And to be clear, this was a conversation that was focusing on the policy discussion, because frankly, that's critically important. But we have decided to dedicate multiple podcasts to this initiative. Again, because it's essential to the success of our work. It's essential 
to the success of our goal of achieving the SDGs in the last mile within the decade of action for implementation of the SDGs. And so this is one of multiple podcasts we will be doing on our policy work that you will be coming across in the future. Thank you so much for what was a very rich and again, important conversation. And as I mentioned in the past earlier, touching on challenges that are both distinct to the markets that we work in, but also I think quite universal. And I think for that conversation, we were really fortunate to have the th- the three thought leaders that we had today, Med Dramish, Amani Itatiro, and Olivia Lonku. Thank you so much for providing your time and your insights. Capital Musings is a production of the Partnerships Policy and Communications Unit of the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Fernando Tarauth is the executive producer. I'm your host, David McHale. Thanks. And you'll hear from us soon. Thanks, David. This was great. Really appreciate it. Thanks, David. Thank you, David.